Today we encounter the Ten Commandments, which every few years shows up at one of our readings in the Episcopal Church. And I know how all Episcop what Episcopalians, how we all feel about the Ten Commandments. I don't know, uh, the other day, a couple of weeks ago, Roy Moore was uh, chosen as a rep uh, Republican candidate for the state of Alabama for the next uh, senatorial election. But what it reminded me of was Roy Moore, the judge down in Alabama, who had the two tablets of uh, the Ten Commandments put up in the court, and there was a fight, a legal fight, about whether those should stay there or not. Eventually, he loses the fight, and he has to carry those two tablets that weighed 5,280 pounds, and so he moves them over to some sort of a barn or something like that, and everywhere he goes that he wants to talk about the Ten Commandments, he has to lift them out from wherever the stand is, put them on some sort of a pickup truck, 5,280 pounds, carry them to wherever it is, give the speech, they get to see the Ten Commandments, bring them back, move them back into the stand, 5,280 pounds. I always wonder what kind of machine they had to have over in that uh, barn or whatever it was to be able to load those things back and forth, back and forth, and back and forth. And the reason I tell you all of that is because I think we feel like that. When we read the Ten Commandments, we all feel like it's 5,280 pounds that we have on our backs. 5,280 pounds to weigh us down. And it feels like that because there are so many thou shalt not included in it. And any time that we see not in something, we want to rebel against that particular not. But I think that in order to understand the Ten Commandments at the fullest, at least from my perspective, you have to remember that from my perspective, I offer this for your consideration. There are three critical events in, all of the, in the whole Bible. Three critical events that make the narrative of the Bible uh, important for us. The first one, of course, is creation. Creation. You and I are created by God. We know that. We accept that. We believe that. And it's important to remember that when humankind is created, God says that it was very good. The most important thing that we can say about ourselves is that God considers us, first and foremost, very good, that God loves us and creates us very, very good. That's the important thing we need to remember about creation, one of them. The second one is this, that we are created in God's image. This is about the creation story, that we are created in God's image. Now, let's make sure of this. God is not created in our image. We are created in God's image. And I would suggest to you for your consideration that if we are created in God's image, then we are created free, loving, and creative. Three of the qualities of God. Free, loving, and creative. And from my perspective, that makes the creation story one of the foundations of the biblical narratives, one of the foundations of our life of people of faith. The second one is the Exodus event itself. The Exodus event is the liberation of the Israelites from slavery. Remember I just told you that God created all of us free somehow, somehow between the very beginning of the book of Genesis, by the time that we get to the book of Exodus, the people are in slavery in Egypt. And God is like God saying, I created you free. You know what? I'm going to free you again. I don't care what you've done to get into slavery. I'm going to free you all over again. And we have that passage in the 15th chapter of the book of Exodus, where the Hebrew people are freed. Now, there are three verses of it, three, three variations of it, and you can believe whichever variation you want to believe. The fact is that God acts on, on people's behalf. God acts on our behalf. It's like saying, I want you to be free. I created you free. I want you to be free. I don't want anybody to enslave you. If you've ever gone over to the uh, Museum of African American History and, and, and Culture and you go to the very bottom floor, you know that slavery is a sin against God as well as it is a sin against humankind. 
against humanity. And when you see it there, you realize that God created no one, no one, but no one, to be a slave of somebody else. Slavery can be imposed on us. We can impose it on ourselves. I think addictions are part of that. And I always think sometimes, and I know people can't help themselves, by the way, how do you allow yourself to be enslaved by something outside of yourself? But let's move on. And the third critical event in the biblical narratives is this. It's the resurrection. For the Christian community, that's it, isn't it? If we were delivered from slavery, the, the resurrection event frees us from sin. The resurrection event frees us from fear of death. The resurrection event gives us the new life. It is the foundation for everything we Christians believe. And those three events, creation, the Exodus event, and the resurrection, are the three events that are the foundation events, from my perspective, of all the biblical narratives. Everything else is almost like a, it's almost like a commentary. So we get to the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus. Like I said, and I've said it a hundred times, context determines content. So here we are in the book of Exodus. You read the Ten Commandments and you say, oh, it feels like 5,280 pounds. But remember what's happened. The people were delivered in the 15th chapter of the, of, of the book of Exodus. And by the 20th chapter, from 15 to 20, they've been complaining. They've been complaining about being free. You brought us out of Egypt for this? You brought us out of Egypt without any food? We are hungry. Give us some food. You brought us out of Egypt. We're thirsty. Give us some, some, something to drink. When you read those five chapters, it reminds you of what happened in Romania back in 1989. Do you remember that? And Nicolae Ceausescu was the uh, ruler, whatever you want to call him, of Romania. And he had been kicked out, and then he had been tried, and he had been executed in 1989. And chaos reigned over Romania. And so the Western reporters, as I remember the story, the Western reporters flooded over to Romania to be able to find out what people were thinking because nothing was working in Romania. And they went over there and looked for somebody who could speak English over in Romania. They finally found somebody, and they said to them, uh, what's going on here? And there was a woman, and she said to them, we have freedom, but we don't know what to do with it. We have freedom, but we don't know what to do with it. That's what's happening in the book of Exodus from chapter 15 to chapter 20. They have freedom. They don't know what to do with it. All they can do is complain. And then we get to the tablets. And here, you know, you know the story. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments are given to Moses. He comes back down. They've created a golden calf. He crashes the commandments, goes back to God and says, get rid of all these people. And God says, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to find out a way that we can live, that we can teach people how to live with freedom. What is the best way to live with freedom? And that's what the commandments are all about. Notice how they begin. It's a reminder that God frees us. I am the Lord your God. I have brought, it out. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I have brought you out of the house of bondage. You are free. He's saying to the Hebrew people, he's saying to all of us, you are free. I want you to be free of everything. And in the Christian tradition, I want you to be free of sin and the finality of death. I want you to be free, and I am the one who am doing it. And in order for us to live with freedom, here are some things that may help us to be able to do it. 
And I think they're divided into three. The first three is about relationship with God. The first one is, you shall have no other God but me. That's pretty easy. That doesn't need any explanation for the Hebrew people. And said, you know, you delivered us out of Egypt. You gave us the freedom. Why would we want somebody else? It needs no explanation. It's almost like God is saying, you're stupid if you want another God. And the Hebrew people may be responding like Alexander Hamilton in the play, Alex, uh, the Hamilton play. He says, you think I'm stupid? I'm not stupid. And sure enough, they say, you know, all right, we'll bargain with you. You are our God. He says, don't have any other God. I'm it. Remember, I'm the one who created you. Remember, I'm the one who delivered you. Remember, I am the one who frees you. And then the second one is, don't make any idols for yourself. Don't make any idols for yourself. And that I translate it to be, and I offer for your consideration, that creating idols is to worship something smaller than God. It is to serve that which cannot liberate us. In other words, something that will return us to some form of slavery. I would suggest to you that you try naming some idols in your life. If somebody comes down the pike with a golden, with a golden cow, uh, you know that that's an idol. That's a pretty easy one to resist. I ever see a golden calf and say, oh no, not me. <laughs> but then there are other idols, don't you think? How about the idol of health, of money, of sex, of romance, of friendship, patriotism, independence? You say back to me, but all those are good things. And I respond by saying, of course they are all good things. How else can they become idols? The first criterion of an idol is that it gladdens our hearts because that is how we depend on them and finally cling to them as the only possible source of life. That's what an idol is, and that's the ones to which we should beware. In our contemporary life, the other day I read an article in the New York Times by Brett Stevens, who I read later on was a commentator for the Wall Street Journal, a conservative commentator for the Wall Street Journal, that the New York Times hired him away to try to create a more balanced perspective in the losing New York Times. And uh, he started writing an article the other day, and the article was, Repeal the Second Amendment. Now, I want to tell you, you know, that I didn't find it very convincing, and I didn't find it very, uh, something that I really bought into. But the problem was, if you went to the website and you read all the commentary after the article, it makes you wonder if we haven't created an idol out of the Second Amendment as something that pretends to give us life when it doesn't. As if God had written the thing on the ten tablets, on the two tablets, and given it to us and said, this is one of the commandments. Anything that gladdens our hearts that much, to which we give that much power, becomes an idol in our lives. The third one is, don't trivialize God by forgetting God that God's name is holy. I translate that to that as borrowing from Walter Brueggemann. That you, it, uh, this one is about trivializing God is by using God's name to advance our own purposes rather than God's purposes. Think about it. Anybody who suggests that we should live in a theocracy should be careful. Anybody who says that they have all the answers from God, we should be careful. Anybody who wants us to live in some form of theocracy, we should all be alarmed. 
Because they're using God's words for their own purposes, not for God's purposes. And using God's name in vain is doing that. It is exactly doing that, using God's name for our own purposes. The fourth and fifth commandments are to make a God out of ourselves, which I think is what's the underlying meaning concerning the Sabbath and parents. Concerning the Sabbath. If God had to take a day off after creating the world, why should we not take a day off? Let me tell you, it's very bad theology to try to improve on God's life. It's very dangerous theology. Let me tell you something else about not being able to take a, a, a Sabbath day. I've told you, I say this to this congregation over and over and over and over. Everything you do is important. Every act in which we participate is important. Everything that we do in our lives is important. You and I know it, you know that it's important. But let me tell you what else is different from that. No one is indispensable. Everything we do is important, but no one is indispensable. And the moment you think you're indispensable, you start thinking of yourself as a God. And the value of the Sabbath day, taking that day, is to remind yourself of your, your place in society, to remind yourself of your place in life, to remind yourself of your place in relationship with God. What you do is important, but let me tell you, no one is indispensable. The only one who's indispensable is God. And the moment that you start thinking that way, you get into deep trouble because you've tried to improve on the life of God. And as I said, that is very, very, very dangerous theology. Honor your father and your mother. I know, I know. We've got complicated relationships with our parents. There's that wonderful last line in Dana Goya's poem, which is entitled Unsaid, and it reads, think of the letters you write the dead. After our parents are gone, we keep writing letters. We ca- I write letters to my mother. I keep saying, I can't believe I did that. You ever thought that? I can't believe I did that. I am so sorry I did that. We keep writing those letters. We know we have complicated, complicated relationships with our parents. But honoring our parents and our mothers is reminding us that we're part of a long list, that they, first of all, uh, the obvious thing, they gave us life especially your mothers, since they did all the heavy lifting. They gave us life. That merits some honor. But furthermore, you know then that you belong to a story, that your story is not the beginning of the story, that you're part of a very long story. And by honoring your father and your mother, you are honoring the place where you belong in that particular story. And you realize that all you are is a steward of where you are in life. I am a steward of the office of rector of St. John's Church. That office does not belong to me. It belongs to God and then it belongs to this church. You are a steward of your life. You are a steward of your children. You are a steward of your resources. You are a steward of your love. All of us are a steward of of what God has given to us. And God asks us to act responsibly. And by honoring our fathers and mothers, we know that we belong to that line. We know that we're part of a story that did not begin with us. When I was a young guy, much more foolish than I am, 
I was back in uh, Canuga Conference Center in Hendersonville, North Carolina, and I was working there as a lifeguard at the waterfront. And while I was working as a lifeguard at the waterfront, uh, uh, one of my really good friends is, was the bishop, is the bishop, was the bishop, he's retired now, the bishop of the Diocese of Central Florida, uh, Bill Falwell. And so we were all by the waterfront, and I don't know what caused me to say this. I don't know what the conversation was, but I remember the episode. And somehow I blurted out to Bishop Falwell, who's about 5'6 or something like that, and I said to him, you know, I am a self-made man. And Bishop Falwell stood up from where he was, and he stood up, and all of a sudden this five foot six guy got to be about seven feet tall. And he looked at me and he said, what makes you think you made yourself? Who do you think is paying for your education? Who do you think is providing your food? Who do you think is taking care of you? What makes you think that you're creating yourself? What makes you think you're the beginning of the story? And then he concluded it with the ultimate slap in the face, and he said, anybody who thinks that they're a self-made man has been made by a very poor construction company. <laughs> so he returned back to his natural height, five foot six, and I was reduced to five foot five but it made the point. The other temptations are about how we live with each other. Every, other, every one of them warrants, warrants a sermon in themselves, but they're inviting us as free people how to respect life, how to respect the vows we make in marriage to one another, how do we respect the property that other people have, and how do we respect truth. And that one is a sermon in and of itself, but for another day. Which underlie that freedom means being a people before God, and we are called to respect the boundaries so that all people can live in peace. Those are the Ten Commandments, describing a life that is worth living. God is saying to us, here's a life that works Sink these ten posts around your tent, and it will hold up your tent. Ignore them, and you will flirt with your own destruction. This, along with freedom, is my gift to you. Let me also tell you this. There is no reward for keeping the commandments. It is only a statement of relationship with God and relationship with one another as we discover a way to live in peace and conciliation in our own lives. Amen.